Our scripture reading for this morning is from Psalm 24. Psalm 24. Page 862 in your Old Testaments in the Pew Bibles. Psalm 24. Let's ask the Lord for a blessing upon the reading of his word and the proclamation of his word in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. A word which points us directly to who you are and to your son, Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. And we pray, O Lord, that as we hear your word this morning, that you would work in us through your Holy Spirit and give us understanding. And then allow us not only just to be hearers of that word, but to be doers as well and to be prepared to change our lives in accordance with it. To you be the glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false, he will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. So far the reading of God's word. In the contemporary testimony of the Christian Reformed Church, we confess that our world belongs to God. And so would you join me in the confession in these words? It's also in your bulletin, by the way. These words are written there, too. As we all say together, it's in the order of service there, the little paragraph. Our world belongs to God, not to us or earthly powers, not to demons, fate, or chance. The earth is the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who dwell and and all who live in it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, last weekend as we wrapped up the series on the characteristics of the church, we were reminded, among other things, that prayer is one of those characteristics. In fact, on Thanksgiving Day, we were reminded that the primary means by which we give thanks is prayer. So think of it this way. When someone has done something for you, the first thing that you probably will do is say something. You will probably say, thank you, which is prayer. And the second thing that people tend to do when someone has done something for them is to say, how can I make it up to you? What can I do to repay your kindness to me? 
And so when we put it in the Christian context, when we think about the good news of Jesus and the salvation he brings, we say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for adopting me as your son or as your daughter. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the life you give me. Thank you for... And so on. You get the picture. And that's prayer. When you say, thank you, Lord, that's prayer. You're on your knees or sitting with your head bowed or arms outstretched, speaking your thanks to the Lord for all that he has done for you. And that's the most important way of saying thanks. But beyond saying thanks, beyond prayer is, as Romans 12 verse 1 puts it, Offering is the offering of ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. So beyond saying thank you, we are called to live a life of obedience to the Lord. So think of it this way. If someone helped you out in a time of crisis, you said thank you, and then along comes Halloween and you go and egg their house. How thankful are you really? If someone lent you money when you were in a jam and you said, thank you, but then you never made any sort of attempt to pay the money back or you get nasty when they say, hey, remember that money that I lent to you? How thankful are you really? If someone rescued you from serious injury and you went out of your way to say thank you, and then later on you put that person in serious danger, how thankful are you really? If you say thank you, Lord, for all the gifts that you have given to me, But then you go on and you just live your life according to your own good pleasure without paying attention to the Lord ever again or his gifts. How thankful are you really? You see, prayer may be the primary way in which we show our thankfulness to the Lord, but that prayer has to be backed up with thankful living or else the initial words of thanks don't really amount to much. And therefore, we are now moving from a weekend of reflection on prayer and the characteristics of the church, a weekend of reflection on thanksgiving, to a new series of sermons on stewardship or on living thankfully. And the community care group discussion material that, you, that has been prepared for this evening will cover the topic of stewardship as will the student impact material in the weeks to come. And the library committee has been so faithful as to pull all the material we could find in our church library, children's books, videos, study guides, materials written by Citizens for Public just Justice, and so on, and made them available on the table in the hall where you can check them out for further study. You still have to go through the whole library procedure, but they'll do that right there at the table. And so over the next six weeks, we're going to be deeply engaged in a discussion concerning stewardship in various ways. Now, when I think of the word stewardship, a host of images come to mind. Creation care, 
giving, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we use our talents, how we look after the animals on this earth, how we use energy and resources, our vacation time, our leisure time, our work, our land use, our garbage, water usage, poverty, justice issues, relationship with our neighbors, and so forth. There's a host of issues that all the little guys didn't understand what stewardship is about. I, I, I get that. That's a big word. In fact, one of the questions that you're going to be asked to consider tonight if you take this particular part of the curriculum is this. What comes to mind when you hear the word stewardship? Make a list. In the beginning, the Lord created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created human beings. Male and female, he created them, says the Bible in Genesis 1. And there they were. Adam and Eve, kings and queens of creation. What a special status the Lord gave to human beings. Fill the earth and subdue it was the mandate. It was not fill the earth and misuse it or destroy it or make a mess of it or use it as, every, as you wish. No, the message was, as kings and queens, as God's vice regents, care for, tend the earth for his glory. It's mine. I put you in this earth as trustees of my wonderful, excellent creation. And so we were placed here as stewards of creation. That's what we are, trustees of all that the Lord has given us. Psalm 8 sings about our status. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. We are stewards, but he is the owner, the earth is the Lord's, as we just noted a few moments ago from Psalm 24. So over the next weeks, we're going to be exploring what that means that we are stewards, and I trust that as the weeks go on, the picture will get fuller and fuller. But now as we begin this discussion, I know very well that this is a touchy one. Stewardship, the whole talk about stewardship is something that challenges our culture, our Western culture, our North American culture, our culture here in this city. It challenges our way of spending money, our way of vacationing, our way of dealing with the poor, our way of living in the 21st century. And let's face it, we don't like being challenged. I don't. You don't. On the whole, we are quite comfortable with the way we live. We don't like it when people challenge our lifestyle. We don't like it when people challenge the way we care for the earth. We don't like it when we're challenged about the extravagance of a wedding or a funeral or a party or whatever. 
Those are touchy things. Who are you to question about what I want to do at my wedding? Who are you to question about what I want to do for my funeral? We hate being challenged, especially in this culture of entitlement and in this culture which says, I can do whatever I want. As a matter of fact, we're encouraged to do whatever we want. Just do it. And yet that's exactly what this series is going to do. It's going to challenge us. And I'm going to be as uncomfortable with that as the rest of you. Because I wonder sometimes about my stewardship of the things that the Lord has entrusted to me. The indictment of the North American church and of our culture is really serious. Ronald Sider, a local author, author of Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, a biblical study. Some of you may remember that book. It's kind of an old one now. Also wrote a more recent book entitled The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience. And in that little booklet, he asks the question, why are Christians living just like the rest of the world? And he quotes Michael Horton, who said, quote, evangelical Christians are as likely to embrace lifestyles every bit as hedonistic, materialistic, self-centered, and sexually immoral as the world in, ge in general. Really? Sider writes, quote, whether the issue is divorce, materialism, sexual promiscuity, racism, physical abuse in marriage, or neglect of a biblical worldview, the polling data point to widespread blatant disobedience of clear biblical moral demands on the part of people who are allegedly evangelical born-again Christians. The statistics are devastating. George Barna, a Christian researcher, writes, quote, Christian, American Christianity has largely failed since the middle of the 20th century because Jesus' modern-day disciples do not act like Jesus. Our own denomination will back that up in one area. Our own denomination in the study of abuse discovered that the amount of abuse within the Christian Reformed Church is equal to that of the general society. Go figure. How does that work? And in response to this indictment of Christians, of North American Christians, some have said, if that's the way it is, and it's, if that's the way Christians are going to live, then the whole thing is worthless, worthless, useless. I'm out of here. If Christians are no different than anybody else and don't live any differently than anybody else, I'm out of here because there are much more exciting communities to be part of than this one. That's a sad thing. 
And indeed, if Christians do not live what they preach, if they do not follow through with their saying thank you by being living sacrifices, then maybe there's some truth to that. That means maybe that Christianity is a farce. Cider writes, This scandalous behavior mocks Christ, undermines evangelism, and destroys Christian credibility. Are you uncomfortable already? I am. So this whole series of sermons is going to be calling us back to giving some thought to how real our thank you is. If you call Jesus Christ Lord and Savior, but do not live it out, one cannot help but wonder about the sincerity of your confession. If you have gone through Thanksgiving Day giving thanks for all sorts of things, but then just proceed to live and use and abuse as you have always done, one cannot help but wonder about the sincerity of your thanksgiving. And so I guess get ready for a challenging discussion in the weeks to come. Please, please don't shy away from it. Don't shy away from the tough questions. Ask them of each other, of yourself. Talk about it in love and in care. And then maybe change. But this morning we begin. And as we begin, it's important that we start by confessing and understanding what Psalm 24 verse 1 declares. That's where the Christian faith is founded, and that's where it begins. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And the writer of Psalm 50 adds to that by quoting the Lord himself, declaring, Every animal of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. The world is mine and all that's in it. In other words, when we confess the sovereignty of God, among other things, among other things we confess that God is the owner. He's the landlord of the entire world, of the entire universe for that matter. We just declared it. Our world belongs to God, not to us or earthly powers, not to demons or fate or chance. The earth is the Lord's. He is the King of glory. And this has to be our starting point in any discussion concerning stewardship. The creation belongs to God. Why does it belong to God? The reason it belongs to him is because he founded it upon the seas. He established it upon the waters, Psalm 24, verse 2. In other words, the reason it belongs to the Lord is simply because he created it in the first place. It has his stamp of ownership on it, simply because he made it. 
And his signature is found everywhere, which is precisely why the writer of Psalm 19 states, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. So he made it. He stamped his ownership on it. How do we as people then fit into the picture? Dr. Neil Plantinga in one of his booklets puts it this way. We are only long-term guests. All that exists belong to the, belongs to the Lord, and we as people, as the crown of God's creation, are guests, trustees. So think about that for a minute. That means that in spite of what the deed might say in our nice little folders, and in spite of what the lawyers have said, yeah, that's correct, our land, our houses, our means of transportation, our money, our clothing, our iPods and other electronic devices, our hockey equipment or dirt bikes or whatever you have doesn't belong to us, but belongs to God. Take that a step further. Further, As Reformed Christians, we've always gone so far to say that even our children, in spite of the fact that they may have our genes and chromosomes and so forth, do not belong to us either. They're merely entrusted to us for a time and a season. And incidentally, because our children are a trust from the Lord, it's our task as parents and as a Christian community to make sure that they understand what it means to be a trustee of the earth. What it means that there's not one square inch of creation over which the Lord does not say, I am Lord. And that's, of course, where Christian education finds its place. So all that we have doesn't belong to us. It belongs to the Lord. Now, besides the fact that we often tend to think that the world belongs to us, the contemporary testimony lists some other entities that often tend to think that they're owners of the world. Governments, nations, rulers, whatever earthly powers there may be, often function and make legislation like the land within their borders belongs to them to do with as they wish. And besides decisions about the land, many governments also sometimes make decisions about their citizens to show that they think that all the people belong to them too, and they're accountable to no one because they're the highest authority in the land. Certainly I saw something of that firsthand when we as a family lived in Haiti. Many, of, many a ruler of Haiti over the years seems to have merely done what was right in their own eyes to advance their own cause. They saw Haiti, that piece, little piece of land in the Caribbean, as a place they could do with whatever they wanted. They were the owners. They were the king. They were royal. So they stripped the land, and they raped the people of riches and power. Romans 13 would tell us that from a biblical, biblical perspective, all the rulers of the earth are merely trustees of the nation. The Lord gives them to rule. Now take it even a step further. The contemporary testimony goes so far as to say that even 
demons do not own the world. Oh, Satan may be the prince of darkness, but he is not the owner of this world. God is. Now, even as I say that, I know that there are a number of people under the Christian umbrella who disagree with such an assertion. Popular television evangelists such as Joyce Meyer and Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland and others of the faith movement are influencers of this thought. When it really comes down to it, they view Satan as Lord of the earth, not God. And their premise is that at the time of the fall into sin, Satan pulled off the coup of the ages. It was at the time of the fall, they say, that, quote, Adam and Eve were barred from Eden, God was banished from the earth, and Satan acquired legal rights to the earth and to her inhabitants. Copeland is quoted as saying, God is on the outside looking in. He doesn't have any legal entree into the earth. The thing don't belong to him. And behind this sort of thinking is the thought that basically God and Satan are equals in terms of power and authority. The battle of the ages is between two equals. Satan somehow got the upper hand at the time of the fall. So in, in effect, the Lord lost the earth. And history then has to be interpreted, they suggest, as a spiritual battle between the forces of darkness and light in which two equals go at it. And the consequences for the church with this dualistic way of thinking is that it basically finds itself in a constant struggle with the forces of evil in an effort to regain the world inch by inch for the Lord. So really, the church is like the old-time explorers, you know, who used to go across the ocean, find a piece of land, plant a flag in it, and say, this is for Spain, or this is for Holland, or this is for Portugal, or this is for France. And now that it's claimed for that, now we're going to keep fighting and pushing back the aboriginal tribes to make sure that that land is all of ours. There's Christians who will confess that that's the way it works with the world, too. We have a little piece of God's kingdom, and now we're pushing back. And so then we pray a hedge of protection around that little piece, and then we keep going till, till the day comes when all of it belongs to the Lord. And that battle will continue until Satan has finally succumbed and is kicked off, to, off the earth. And some of that is put forward as orthodox Christian belief, but it is not orthodox Christian belief. For we confess on the basis of Scripture, our world belongs to God. Satan is not the Lord of this earth, never has been, never will be. It's not, create, not Satan who created everything. It doesn't have his stamp of ownership on it. He's not an equal with God. We sometimes give him far too much credit. He's a created being and is not stronger than the Lord. He can certainly never snatch God's children from him. And that's so because God is the sovereign of the universe. And he's never abdicated his authority or his place. And then if you have it before you, you notice that the testimony goes on to declare the world does not even belong to fate or chance. 
Jesus talks about that in Matthew 10, 29 and 30 when he talks about the fact that even a sparrow will not fall to the ground without the will of your Father. Even the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Even the very tiny things are important to the Lord. Of course they are. He made them. Nothing in this world happens apart from the hand of the Lord. That's called providence. I know that's so hard to understand, especially as we experience ISIS and Ebola and Syria, and the list is long. And providence is a discussion for another day. The point is the Lord God is sovereign. He made it. He cares for it. He protects it, and he leads all of it to where he will have it go, not where we would have it go, to where he would have it go, namely the day of Christ's return. So that's where we begin. God is sovereign. And because God is sovereign, and we are his long-term guests, it stands to reason that such a status has implications for us. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Any guest cannot just take advantage of the place where they are staying. The owner has some say. If you're a guest at somebody else's house, you go in there. Just just imagine that you were a guest at someone else's house and you walked in and you decided, nah, I hate the way these people furnish this place. I don't like their pictures and all this kind of stuff. So while they're gone, I'm just going to change the thing around. And I'm going to throw a bunch of stuff at the road because it's really not nice and it's good. Can you imagine you come back to your house, to those guests? What would you do? You'd probably say a few things to your guests, not the least of which you'd probably kick them out. Sounds a little bit like Garden of Eden. The owner has say. Likewise, as we live on this planet, a certain behavior is expected of all those who are trustees. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Now, we don't have time to go into all the implications in detail this morning. You're going to talk about that further in your groups, and we'll get to them further as this series go along. But certainly it must mean some things like treating the other guests or other people as created in the image of God. Racism, bigotry, bullying, abuse, and so forth ought not to be part of our lives. You're not a very good guest if that's the way you treat the owner. It must also mean that we must do some things to advance our neighbor's good name and work for his good. It means probably that we have to take care of ourselves and live clean and holy lives. After all, we serve and live in the presence of a living, holy God, a God who owns us. Remember, we were bought with a price, namely the blood of Jesus. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. My only comfort in life and in death is that I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He's my Lord. I belong to Him, not to me. So that has to have an impact on the way in which I live. It must. It must mean that the animals that share this planet with us must be treated with care and respect. 
And when we pollute or litter or do things that wantonly destroy the environment and we don't care at all, we show that we don't really recognize the Lord as the sovereign of the earth. <clears throat> this is my Father's world, we confess. Well, that means, as the songwriter put it, he trusts us with his world to keep it clean and fair, all earth and trees, all skies and seas, all creatures everywhere. It's going to be uncomfortable as we talk about all this stuff because, boy, that hits home. But we begin by saying the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. That's our primary confession and the very foundation upon which rests any further discussion about stewardship. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Who's coming? The King of glory, the Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. Amen.